This episode discusses adult subject matter, including descriptions of sexual abuse of a child, and is intended for adult consumption only. Listener discretion is advised. If you have been affected by sexual violence, free, confidential support is available 24-7 through Reign's National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673 and online.rain.org. Ivan Malat, Australia's most notorious serial killer, is dying. His health has deteriorated quickly since his terminal cancer diagnosis in May 2019. He can no longer walk, is constantly hooked to an oxygen supply, and has an IV drip for antibiotics and pain relief. His family sits by his hospital bed, under the watchful eye of armed police guards. They monitor his breath, not knowing which one will be his last. His brother asks if he wants a priest. Perhaps, with very little time left, Ivan has things he wants to confess. But he is adamant he's not guilty for the crimes he was convicted of. And, as he lays dying, uses the last of his energy to list all the reasons why. Ivan has been held at a super-maximum prison 200 kilometers from Sydney since 1996. In July of that year, he was found guilty of the murders of seven young backpackers and the attempted murder of one who managed to escape. During his 23-year incarceration, Ivan has vehemently refused to cooperate with the police. His stubborn denial of his crimes has also left the families of his known victims unable to move on. While they have spent the last 23 years living under the fog of grief, Ivan has lodged appeals, claimed he's the victim of a miscarriage of justice, and shown nothing but scorn for their suffering. The police and families have tried to ignore Ivan's protests over the years and gain what little comfort they can from the knowledge that he spends his days in a solitary confinement cell. But Ivan doesn't make that easy for them. When the news breaks that Ivan Malat is dying, New South Wales police see it as their last opportunity to put the outstanding questions about his crimes to rest. They scramble a team of detectives tasked with extracting a deathbed confession. Between May and October 2019, the detectives interview Ivan eight times. They use every technique they can think of to elicit a confession. They appeal to Ivan's love of his own family, plead for compassion on behalf of his victims' families, and remind him that this is the last chance to clear his conscience. The detectives are demoralized and know there is very little time left to get anything out of Ivan. Every interview may be their last. In one final attempt, they decide to put the ball in Ivan's court, asking him to call them if he wants to talk further. Ivan scoffs at their request. If he dies without making a confession, the full horrors of his crimes will never be known. The detectives leave the hospital frustrated and fully aware that parents of his known victims and potential other victims are also desperate for that confession. Parents like Ian Clark, whose daughter, Caroline Clark, was murdered by Ivan Malat. When Clark heard the news that his daughter's killer was dying, he hoped desperately that the man would confess. We still think of Caroline every day, he told a journalist. But it doesn't mean to say we have to think of Malat every day. If he was to finally face up to the fact and admit to any others that he has done, if indeed he has, then I think that would be a wonderful thing for those parents. For many, 
a deathbed confession is the only way they will ever be able to truly move on. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Ivan Milat, of the words the world hoped he would speak as he lay dying, and his refusal to do so. It is a story about a serial killer who shows no remorse in his final days. Victims whose lives were snatched from them in their prime. Parents living with the grief of losing a child in the most horrendous way imaginable. It's about a family that protected their relative despite his heinous crimes and a nation shocked by the evil lurking within it. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Caroline Clark, a British backpacker, arrives in Sydney on September 19th, 1991, from London. Caroline is on an epic travel adventure, and Australia is the mecca for young people struck by wanderlust. She quickly checks into a popular King's Cross hostel where she meets Joanne Walters. The pair become instant friends. Caroline and Joanne spend the next couple of months picking up jobs here and there, nannying, fruit picking, and pressing t-shirts in a factory. They have traveled to Victoria and Tasmania and made great friends along the way. In April 1992, they set their sights on their next epic road adventure. Before doing so, Caroline swaps her one-man tent for a friend's three-man tent. She and Joanne plan to share it. It's more spacious and is easier to carry than two separate tents. Joanne calls her mother on April 15th and tells her about their upcoming trip. She and Caroline plan on hitchhiking from Sydney to Melbourne. Her mother warns her about the dangers of hitchhiking 
but Joanne just laughs and promises to call her when she arrives. Time passes and Joanne doesn't call as expected. But her parents know she is on the road, so calling isn't always easy. A month later, her dad sits by the phone waiting for his daughter to call him for Father's Day. She doesn't. He calls the bank and they tell him she hasn't withdrawn any money since the 16th of April, the day after she last spoke to her mother. She is due to fly home on May 28th, and her parents resolve that if she isn't on that flight, something terrible must have happened. Unbeknown to Joanne's parents, her friend's family are also worried about their daughter. Caroline last called home on April 12th. She is just as excited as Joanne about their trip to Melbourne. Her parents end the call expecting a letter every two weeks as usual and for phone calls in May. But she doesn't call on May 8th to wish her sister a happy birthday. And they hear nothing on May 24th, her father's birthday. The family chalk it up to Caroline being on the road. But when Joanne's father contacts the Clarks and tell them he hasn't heard from his daughter either, fear and panic set in. Joanne's parents call their daughter's friends and employers in Australia and in the United Kingdom. On May 29th, one of Joanne's old employers in Australia reports her missing to the New South Wales police on the family's behalf. Caroline's parents report their daughter missing on June 5th. The families do what they can from the United Kingdom, including generating some media attention. The case is passed to the King's Cross Police Station. But in 1992, King's Cross Police are under-resourced and have a long history of corruption. Officers reportedly work for drug dealers, and some spend more time collecting bribes than investigating missing persons reports. It is not until they receive a call from the detectives in the Belanglo Forest in September 1992, three months after the girls were first reported missing, that they are forced to act. It's September 19th, 1992, and two members of a running club are making their way through a eucalyptus grove deep in the Belanglo Forest in New South Wales. The forest is 3,800 hectares of pine and native trees and sits three kilometers west of the Hume Highway. Just before 4 p.m., the runners approach a sandstone outcrop. As they get closer, they are stopped in their tracks by the unmistakable scent of decay. They slow their pace and follow their noses until they reach the source of the overwhelming stench. One of the friends spots something under a rock overhang. At first, he thinks it's the remains of a kangaroo or wombat concealed by fallen branches and leaves. But as he moves closer, he comes to the horrific realization that the source of the smell is badly decomposed human remains. Terrified, the pair run out of the forest and call the local police. A team of detectives rush to Belanglo. Darkness has fallen, and they begin their crime scene analysis under portable floodlights. The remains have been hidden in a makeshift grave of sticks and branches. Under the debris, another layer of smaller twigs and leaves conceals the body of a woman lying on her stomach. Eventually, the body is turned over for further inspection. There are indications of sexual assault. From the clothing and her missing persons report, the detectives already have an idea of who she might be. Late that night, after she has been removed from her makeshift grave in the Belanglo, the detectives make a call to the King's Cross police station in Sydney. They give King's Cross officers details of the find, who agree the young woman is likely to be Joanne Walters, 
missing since May 1992. Later, their suspicions are confirmed through dental records. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The detectives leave Belanglo for the night with a crime scene under police guard. But they know they will have to return the next day. And likely, beyond. The forest has not yet given up all its secrets. If Joanne Walter's remains are in the Belanglo, they suspect it is only a matter of time before they find her friend, Caroline Clark. Early on the 20th of September, 1992, the police returned to Belanglo Forest with a volunteer rescue party to search for Caroline Clark. Only 30 meters from Joanne, another makeshift grave is detected. The rescue party is withdrawn and a crime scene unit takes over. Caroline has been concealed in a similar way to her friend. She is under a fallen tree covered by sticks, branches, and leaves. As the investigators begin their examination of the scene, media vans gather at the entrance to Belanglo. The lead detective orders that all files on the two friends be transferred from King's Cross Police Station to Liverpool Police Station, located just outside Belanglo. As the police search the forest for more remains, they become increasingly aware of the other missing backpackers. Deborah Everest and James Gibson missing since December 1989. Simone Schmidl, missing since January 1991. And Gabor Neugbauer and Anya Hopshied missing since January 1992. The media are connecting the cases and the crime scene evidence suggests they may have a serial killer on their hands. Could one person be responsible for all the disappearances? Between September and November 1992, the investigation is in full swing with 10 detectives working round the clock. The victims have been killed in two very distinct ways. Some have been shot repeatedly, while others have suffered a frenzied knife attack. This difference splits the investigating team between those who believe there are two killers and those who believe there's only one. They follow every lead as information pours in and are able to trace Joanne and Caroline's last movements. But they're unable to find traces of the other backpackers. They bring the search of Belanglo to an end in late October 1992, having found no other evidence. Despite the media attention and the extent of the investigation, by Christmas, detectives realize their leads have dried up. And the killer is still on the loose. As the new year comes in, Ivan Malat is enjoying life with his new girlfriend. They have a calm and easy relationship, which is a change from the turbulent romances Ivan has had in the past. They are settling into their new home that he spent 1992 building 
and he's just bought himself a bright red Harley Davidson. He still works for the Roads and Traffic Authority. Ivan waterproofs the highways stretching across the country and may be away from home for days or weeks at a time. At work, Ivan is feared by colleagues who over the years have come to view him as somewhat of an outlaw. It's how he likes it and revels in the Rambo image he has crafted for himself. Over the years, they have also worked with some of Ivan's brothers at the Roads and Traffic Authority. A lot of the men keep their distance from the Malots. All the brothers seem a bit strange and are known for being obsessed with guns. They flout the law and create a tense atmosphere wherever they go. One day at work, a group of men are sitting around reading newspapers and talking about the backpacker murders. Ivan's brother, Richard, interrupts the conversation. There are more bodies out there, he says. They haven't found the Germans yet. The men are stunned and fall silent. They are aware that German backpackers are missing from media reports, but the idea they have also been murdered and buried in the Belanglo unnerves them. One of the men recalls going shooting with the Malat brothers. He realizes their favorite shooting spot is close to where Caroline and Joanne were found. Later that day, the subject of the murders comes up again. Richard has more to say. You could pick up anybody on that road and you'll never find out what happened. You'll never find out who did it either. You'd think someone would report his comments to the police, but nobody does. The Malat's outlaw reputation casts fear over everyone they come across. It will take a long time for anyone to find the courage to call the detectives investigating the murders. Is it any wonder that, by all accounts, Ivan is unfazed after the discovery of Caroline and Joanne? His family, friends, and work colleagues have never spoken of the heinous acts they suspect him of. Ivan is surrounded by a stalwart wall of deniability that has protected him his entire life. But it is only a matter of time before that wall finally starts to crumble. The police continue their investigation throughout 1993, but can't seem to catch a break. Ivan continues living his life, cinema dates with his girlfriend, cruising on his Harley, and barbecues with friends. It looks like the murders of Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters might never be solved, which only adds to their parents' immense grief. The families of the other missing backpackers cling to hope, but fear that their loved ones also may have met the same fate. It will take a local man, frustrated that the police didn't search the forest thoroughly enough in September 1992, to break the impasse. Bruce Pryor knows Belanglo well. He lives in the area and is often in the forest collecting firewood. In October 1992, when the remains of Caroline and Joanne are found, he becomes convinced that there are more bodies out there and wants to help. Pryor spends the next year traversing the walking trails, climbing over boulders and searching under rock overhangs for anything that might be useful to the investigation. In October 1993, Pryor scours the Morris Fire Trail. It isn't long into the search that he comes across a bone. Inspecting it, he immediately concludes that the bone is human. Pryor continues his search and rummages through the surrounding bush until a flash of white catches his attention. Brushing aside leaves and dirt, he comes to the horrific realization that he has discovered a human skull. He notifies the police and they quickly descend on the forest once again. Detectives are confronted with a second crime scene with skeletal remains scattered around the forest floor. 
It isn't long before detectives realize they are dealing with the remains of two people. The scene is familiar. Two makeshift graves built from sticks and twigs and indications of extreme violence. The victims have suffered a frenzied knife attack and physical beating. Overkill is the term they use, and detectives believe the victims were not killed quickly, but rather tormented and tortured. With helicopters whirling overhead and media vans amassing at the entrance to the forest, the forensic team worked through the night. Detectives notice a felt floppy hat lying amongst the scattered clothing, jewelry, and human bones. When they check their records, they realize it matches the description of a hat owned by James Gibson. They conclude the other body is likely to be his friend, Deborah Everest. James and Deborah have been missing since December 1989. The police haven't had any leads since James's backpack and camera were found a few months after they went missing. But these items were discovered in Galston Gorge, 130 kilometers away from where the remains are. The detectives cannot make sense of it. There is also a growing feeling within New South Wales police that the investigation has been mishandled. The original search in September 1992 wasn't thorough enough, and the subsequent investigation has somehow lost its way. They need a fresh start, so Detective Clive Smith is brought in as the new lead investigator. Detective Smith is confronted with two separate crime scenes that are most likely connected. A 3,800 hectare forest that will need searching, and 30,000 separate pieces of information collected to date that needs to be sieved through. The world media is also watching his every move. The task ahead is unlike any investigation in the history of New South Wales police. Over the coming days, pathologists confirm the identity of the two skeletal remains found by Bruce Pryor. They are indeed James Gibson and Deborah Everest. The families are informed and Detective Smith organizes a gridlock search of the forest. It's a slow and painful process. By November 1993, the search has moved five kilometers from where James and Deborah were found. 22 square kilometers have been searched, and the 40-odd search team are starting to lose heart. Detectives begin drafting a press release stating that the search of the Belanglo is to end in a day or two. The search leader knows his team is tired. Keep your head down, he instructs them. We'll have one more good search than knock off for the day. As they cross a flat rocky overhang, the silence is pierced by a call from one of the searchers. Find! Everyone freezes on the spot. The leader steps forward and identifies Bone. He looks around and quickly sees more human remains. A skull hidden under sticks and twigs, and a shin bone with a boot at the other end. The search team are withdrawn, and the crime scene unit enters. As they scour the area, the suspicions they had all along seem to be confirmed. These aren't isolated incidents. There is a serial killer on the loose in the Australian outback. The clothes and purple headband at the scene lead investigators to believe that the remains are that of Simone Schmidl, a German backpacker missing since January 1992. The next day, Simone is removed from the crime scene and formally identified. The similarities across the three crime scenes are undeniable. She has been buried in the same way as the others, and like Joanne, appears to have experienced a sexual assault. She's also been killed with more force than needed to cause death. Like some of the other victims, Simone has also endured a slow death 
including a savage knife attack. On November 4th, just as the pathologist is finishing up the postmortem, his phone rings. He is told a helicopter is waiting for him outside to take him to Belanglo. A fourth crime scene has been found, this time with two makeshift graves. There is no doubt in anyone's mind it is the two German backpackers, Gabor Neugebauer and Anya Hapschied, missing since January 1992. Gabor Neugebauer and Anya Hapschied were a quiet and shy couple that suited each other perfectly. They both studied hard and loved to travel. In November 1991, the couple decided to take a spontaneous trip to Australia. However, they were disappointed upon arriving. Gabor expressed his dislike for the country during a phone call with his parents on Christmas Eve. We have to get out of this land as soon as possible, he said before hanging up. Those last words would haunt his parents forever. Now with seven bodies discovered, the police are racing to find a killer. But it isn't a shortage of leads that keeps them from making an arrest. If anything, they have too many leads to keep up with. The investigation is slowed by an influx of information spread across different police forces. Detectives are also in conflict with each other, making coordination and systematic investigation difficult. The overwhelming amount of information to see through and the internal conflict within the investigating team means credible leads that all point to Ivan Malat sit on detectives' desk for months before anyone follows them up. On October 13th, 1993, after the discovery of Simone's remains, a local woman phoned the police. She told a detective that she had suspicions about her husband's colleague at the Roads and Traffic Authority. The man casually told her husband about bodies being in the forest and how they would never be found. According to her husband, his colleague reckoned there were more in there. German, the man told him. The detective did some digging and identified the man as Richard Malott. The detective pushed the information up the chain of command and awaited further instructions. Only a week later, on October 18th, a man made a statement to the police. The statement was exceptionally detailed and described seeing two women in the back of a truck gagged and being driven into Belanglo by two men. The level of detail raised suspicions, and detectives concluded the witness either knew something or was trying to misdirect the investigation. The witness signed the statement Alex Malott, Ivan Malott's brother. Detectives investigated further, but quickly moved on to new leads. Somewhere within the thousands of leads coming in, another woman called the crime hotline. She reported her boyfriend's work colleague at the Roads and Traffic Authority, leaving the name Ivan Malott, who also went by the name Bill, for detectives to investigate. And the tips kept coming. A mother called in to report an incident on the Hume Highway way back in January 1990. She was driving down the highway with her kids in the back of the car when a young British backpacker forced her to stop. He jumped in the back and screamed at her to drive. They drove to the nearest police station where he made a report. He had hitched a ride with a man named Bill and close to Belanglo, Bill turned a gun on him. On November 18th, 1993, that young man, Paul Onions, called the crime hotline from the United Kingdom and told them what happened. The officer on the line didn't take it very seriously, and the report was quickly lost in the massive information. 
The detectives have an array of leads all pointing to Malat. Some of the team want to investigate further, but they are too overwhelmed with other work to follow through. It is only in late January, 1994, when the task force brings in an anthropology professor that the pieces start coming together. The professor builds a profile of the killer, or killers in his view. Two, most likely brothers. He argues one dominates the other, owns a motorcycle, and sees himself as an outlaw. His profile makes detectives think of brothers Richard and Ivan Malott, but over February and March of that year, they exclude Richard from the investigation. Detectives check his work schedule and realize he has alibis for the periods the backpackers went missing, but Ivan Malott looks plausible. Eventually, they connect the murders to the attack on onions. The similarities suddenly seem startling. A backpacker on the Hume Highway hitching a ride, who was then attacked near the Belanglo. Onions is lucky he got away. At the end of April, 1994, Onions finally receives a callback from the New South Wales police at his home in England. Onions has been suffering from PTSD, but has never quite connected the panic attacks, fear of going out, and episodes of anxiety with the incident on the Hume Highway. It is only when he receives that call from the Australian police that it begins to make sense. They ask him to get on the next plane to Australia and help with their investigation. At first, Onions is unsure. He doesn't want to relive the trauma of his attack, and the thought of going back to Australia gives him anxiety. But he knows he may be holding information that could help catch the man responsible for not just what happened to him, but also the murders in Belanglo. So he musters the courage to return to Australia. Once there, Onions is taken to a police station and shown a video of suspects. He identifies his attacker as man number four. It's Ivan Malat. The police investigation now zeroes in on Ivan Malat. He lives close to the Hume Highway, and detectives realize Malat was working near Galston Gorge the month James Gibson and Deborah Everest went missing. This would explain how their remains were found in the Belanglo while James's backpack and camera were discovered near the gorge. Malat was at both places that month. They interview Alex Malat at his home about the eyewitness report he made about two men driving into the forest with two young women gagged in the back of their truck. The detectives ask him about any guns he might have and camping equipment. He points them to a backpack that Ivan had given him as a gift. The detectives identify it as Simone's backpack. The find is enough to get a search warrant on Ivan Malat's home. The team includes 21 detectives and search police, 21 armed police, two police dogs, and a negotiator. On May 22, 1994, New South Wales police raid the home that Ivan Malat shares with his girlfriend. They find a treasure trove of items belonging to the various murdered backpackers and weaponry that would shock a military combat unit. Ivan Malat is arrested for the attack on Onions, and the task force begin the arduous task of building their case against him for the murders. He is charged for the murders at the end of May 1994 and the attempted murder of Onions. It is now up to a jury to decide his guilt. The trial of Ivan Malat for the murder of seven backpackers and attempted murder of Paul Onions begins on March 26, 1996. It has taken New South Wales police just under two years to build their case. The families of his victims endure 18 weeks of testimony and a stream of gruesome evidence. 
The prosecution presents exhaustive evidence linking Ivan to the crimes. They reveal a series of items found in Ivan's home belonging to the backpackers. Items found at properties owned by other members of the Malott family are also linked to him. Apparently, he made a habit of gifting the backpackers' belongings to relatives. They find photographs of Malott with Deborah Everest's sleeping bag. They also find Simone Schmidl's tent, sleeping bag, and portable stove that she bought with her father in Germany. The water bottle Simone bought in New Zealand is also discovered in Ivan's possession. She had scribbled her nickname Simi on it. Ivan had tried to conceal the name, but forensics were able to uncover it. Indonesian currency that detectives believed belonged to Gabor Nugbauer and Anya Habshid is found on his bedside table. Next to it, they find a postcard addressed to Bill. Detectives know this is the name Ivan gave to Onions and one he has gone by in the past. A shirt owned by Onions is found hidden in a box in the garage. A photograph of Malat's girlfriend wearing a shirt owned by Carolyn Clark is also discovered. Though the shirt is never found, Detectives are able to prove it belonged to Caroline. A camera identical to Caroline's is also found, along with hers and Joanne's sleeping bags and the three-man tent their friend had given them. This stash of items strewn across Ivan's home and the homes of family members is overwhelming. The anthropologist who helped build a profile of the killer argues Ivan intentionally kept the items as souvenirs by keeping them, he is able to relive his crimes whenever he chooses to. But that isn't the only evidence presented at the trial. In the search of Ivan's home, detectives find 24 weapons, including military assault weapons, rifles, silencers, crossbows, bayonets, machetes, a set of boning and skinning knives, and about a quarter ton of ammunition. During the trial, the prosecution links some of the weapons and ammunition to the crime scenes in Belanglo, proving that the bullets found at several of the crime scenes are from the same batch as those found at Malat's home. As the prosecution rests their case, Ivan's lawyers present a surprising defense, claiming the investigation was mishandled. Ivan swears that he was never shown a search warrant, never read his rights, and at the end of interviews, refused to sign seals on his interview tapes as evidence they were not tampered with. He also claims detectives planted the weapons in his home. Shockingly, the defense instead point the finger at one of his brothers. They suggest Richard Malott might be responsible but that it could have been any one of Ivan's brothers. Despite this, the Malott family remain loyal to Ivan and reiterate the argument to the media outside the courtroom. They claim the prosecution cannot prove which Malat committed the crimes and therefore can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt it was Ivan. The wall of deniability the family has always lived behind remains impenetrable. But the jury sees right through it. On July 27, 1996, Ivan Malat is found guilty of all seven murders and the attempted murder of Paul Onions. While many believe that will be the end of the matter, Ivan begins a campaign to clear his name that continues for 23 years, right up to when he is diagnosed with terminal cancer and is on his deathbed. Ivan remains consistent throughout his incarceration, arguing that the police had a long-standing vendetta against his family. But Malat never offers an explanation for the overwhelming evidence against him. 
perhaps most shockingly, he displays no sympathy for the victim's families and torments them further in statements he makes to clear his name. New South Wales police still suspect one of his brothers may have been his accomplice. But the Malott family's loyalty and lack of evidence make it impossible to bring a prosecution. They also identify other potential victims they believe he might be responsible for. The murder of Karen Rowland, who disappeared in 1971, Robin Hoynville Bartram, and Anita Cunningham, missing since 1972. Gabrielle Yanka and Michelle Riley, also missing since 1972. And Amanda Robinson, Leanne Goodall, and Robin Hickey, missing since 1978. All of these murders remain unsolved, and according to the police, fit Malat's profile. But so much time has passed that only a confession will solve their murders. Ivan Malat will never give up the answers that investigators and victims' families so desperately sought. He dies on October 27, 2019, just days before his final interview is scheduled. Unlike so many criminals who feel the need to unburden their conscience before death, Malat takes his secrets to the grave, content on the trail of destruction he left behind. His refusal to give a deathbed confession seems to be one final way of reliving his crimes and continuing the suffering of those affected. But Malat was not the only person associated with the murders that harbored secrets. In 2006, the Malat family lawyer, John Marston, made his own deathbed confession. Marsden has defended the Malats against various criminal charges for 40 years and was hired by Ivan Malat to represent him in the backpacker murders. But before his case went to trial, Ivan fired him. As he lay dying of terminal cancer, Marsden made a shocking claim. Ivan Malat did have an accomplice in the murder of the seven backpackers. But it wasn't his brother Richard. It was a woman. He doesn't name any names, but many suspect he may have been referring to Ivan's sister. Detectives never investigated Marsden's claims, and the specter of Ivan Malott still hangs over the lives of so many. The Malott family continued to argue his innocence long after his death and refused to cooperate with authorities on the questions that remain. As a final insult, Ivan Malott left behind instructions to his family to force New South Wales Correctional Services to pay his burial costs. They refused, and the family had no choice but to cover the costs themselves. As they laid him in the ground, the secrets he held to the end were also buried with him. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Walter Hout, a proud member of the United States Air Force. But it isn't his military service he will be remembered most for. Hout was one of a select group of men, an inner circle within an already tight-knit group. A man who was there on a day that some say is one of the most significant of the last century. A day when newspaper headlines proclaimed they were not alone in this universe. Headlines that Hout was responsible for releasing but what follows is one of the greatest conspiracy theories of all time, one that Hout is at the center of. And what he arranges to be shared after his death will reignite a decades-old debate 
What really crashed to Earth in Roswell, New Mexico back in 1947? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Saida Ruas. Supervising editor, Alex Benedin. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs> <laughs>